So as we uh, continue through 2 Corinthians, we can see a lot of this letter is written in response to a, a situation that had arisen, obviously, with false teachers, with bad leadership that had come into the picture in Corinth. And what, you know, they had done is come in and compare themselves to Paul and say, hey, we're, we're more of an apostle than Paul is. We have more authority. We're more spiritual. And they were able to convince a large number of people in Corinth that that was true. And it caused all kinds of division. It caused all kinds of problems. And then Paul had to write and you see he had to defend himself over and over. Uh, to the people and convince them, you know, I'm, I'm called and I'm not doing this. Remember, he said, I'm not trying to frighten you with my letters. I'm not, I'm not like them. Paul wasn't trying to build his own kingdom there. He was trying to lead them to God. And a whole lot of that trouble could have been avoided in Corinth if the people in Corinth had had a better sense of discernment about the leaders that they chose to follow about who they choose to listen to. And so Paul, very tactfully, has to kind of throw out there the reasons why they should listen to him. Now, when, when you're not trying to, you know, put your ego out there, and it's not about you, and yet you are the apostle that they need to listen to because God has anointed you as such, you have to be very tactful in how you tell people, I'm right. <laughs> They're not. And you need to listen to me. And so that's what he does beginning in chapter 11 is he showed us what it means to have leaders that are worth following. That they, the, the fruit that each produced in Corinth was on display. And with that simple sense of discernment, of understanding what it is when, when a person's walking with God, when they are pointing you towards the kingdom of God, that you really can see the difference in leaders who are worth following and leaders who are not worth following. Now, this is not saying that, you know, a leader, a godly leader is perfect or, or that they'll never make mistakes. It is saying that the fruit of their lives becomes obvious. The fruit of their ministry becomes obvious over time. In Corinth, what was the fruit of the false teacher's ministry? Division. They were dividing that church over and over and over so that now they're arguing about, you know, remember he said in 1 Corinthians, some say, I follow Paul. Others say, I follow Apollos. Others said, I follow Peter. Others say, I've, you know, the super spiritual, I just follow Jesus, you know. And he finally says, you know, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? He, he had to tell them, look, we're all servants. This is about God's kingdom. And the fruit of the false teachers became evident in division just as the fruit of Paul's ministry became evident as he drew them back together and pointed them all towards Christ. And so look with me at how Paul defends uh, his leadership and uh, shows what godly leadership really looks like in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 6. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, 
or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So you can kind of get some of Paul's sarcasm as he starts to throw it out there. But one of the the key truths of this is that Paul shows us that godly leaders are driven by eternity. It's not the flavor of the day. It's not the culture that drives them and, 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 you know, pushes them to do what they're doing. It is the truth of God's kingdom and the eternity therein. I'm here, Paul was here to announce to you the kingdom of God and to point you in that direction. That's it. And that's what every godly leader throughout the history of the church is looking to do is to get people not to look at them, but to look to him, to look up to heaven, to look to Jesus and to consider the the eternal nature of the things of God as more important than the things of this world. And so listen again to what Paul says. He says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you. What a great way to put that, a divine jealousy. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And the key phrase is here, I feel a divine jealousy. A God longing is the idea right there. When a person has a God longing for another person, it, it can't be explained away. And it will always show itself in a desire for the good of that person mixed with a desire for them to see God. And so they won't back away from the truth. They will always stand on the truth, even if it's unpopular, but they will do it in such a way that they're not belligerent. They will do it in such a way that they're not offensive. They will do it in a way that the person that they are talking to and dealing with knows, like, I care about you. I'm telling you this because I care about you. And that wasn't on display. You see, the false teachers came into Corinth and they were willing to divide the church. They were willing to say, hey, look, you're either on my side or you're on their side. Godly leaders don't force people to take sides in lesser matters. You see, Paul came in and he planted the church and then Apollos came in and he watered the seeds that were planted. And Paul doesn't like, hey, wait, 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 he's working on where that's my work. Paul didn't care. He was like, hey. I'm glad Apollos is watering because he's doing working for the same kingdom that I'm working for. And they weren't dividing the church, but the false teachers immediately started dividing people on lesser matters. Are there issues in which we would have to eventually say, look, you're either with us or against us? Yes. But you know, there aren't a whole lot of those. There really aren't. There, there, there are the issues of, yes, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He is the only way to heaven. And if you don't believe that, then you're not with us anyway. Because that is what sets apart the Christian faith. That is the truth of Christianity, is that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to Him except by the Father. Or except by Him. Comes to the Father except by Him. I'll get that out right. Those are the things that we, you know, we have to agree on or we're not on the same team. 
Outside of that, there's no reason to divide congregations over lesser things. But that is what worldly leaders will almost always do. And so Paul isn't trying to make a name for himself. He's not trying to build his own kingdom. He's not trying to create a following. Uh, He's not looking for Paul's disciples here. And one of the big things for him is that the people are not a means to an end. His concern is for them, not how they can get what get him what he wants. And if you've ever seen this in a leadership role, you know the difference. You can have leaders that are very charismatic. You can have leaders that are very convincing. They're very charming. But at the end of the day, you don't know if they really care about you or not. And something inside just says, I'm... I'm not sure that they're, that they're there. I'm not sure that this is right. And I'm going to tell you, when you feel that, trust it. Now, don't make every decision in the world based on that feeling either. But, but trust it and start looking into Scripture and praying and seeing, is this person pointing me towards God or is he, he or she trying to manipulate me to listen and become a follower of theirs? I remember in my life... One leader, leader, and I'm going to use the quotation marks in as sarcastic a manner as I can, came to me and they were like, you need a mentor and you need this and you need to be able. And I was like, okay, whoa, slow down. I, you know, I'm willing to learn. I, I, look, I, I know I don't have all this stuff figured out. But the way this person just kept coming at me, after a while it was very clear. I'm like, you don't care about me. You care about your legacy. And you're wanting me to fit into a certain mold. And you're trying to force that on me. And as I backed away, this person got more and more divisive. And I didn't even have to fight. Like, I didn't even have to, like, I hardly even even had to say no. I just kind of stepped back and just watched this person just kind of explode. Simply because I wouldn't be a part of whatever was going on there. And, And so... Leaders who are not worth following will use and abuse people to achieve a personal goal. In the kingdom of God, leaders that are godly, the people are the point. Like, it doesn't matter to me. I believe that if we build a church of 3,000 people and we have people driving from all over the place and yet I mistreat people as the pastor, it's kind of pointless what we're doing. We have to have a focus on the kingdom of God that values people. Because that's what God has called us to do. What did he say? Did, did Jesus ascend into heaven and before he said, all authorities on heaven and on earth are given to me, build the greatest organizations mankind has ever seen? That's not what he said. He said, make disciples of all nations. Disciples are people. Disciples are people who are invested in following Jesus and learning the ways of Jesus in believing Jesus and believing what Jesus believed and walking in his footsteps. That's what disciples do. So our calling as Christians is to invest in people so that they follow Jesus. And you can see, especially in Corinth, the false teachers that came in didn't do that. They divided people and manipulated people so that they could get people to follow them and feel important. And that's where Paul calls them these super apostles. I mean, he starts getting sarcastic about who they are because they're bragging about who they are rather than pointing people towards God. And so 
Paul is literally driven by divine power, by the Spirit of God, to care for and help grow the Corinthians into a spiritually mature people whom he can present to Christ. You see, his motivation is from God, and his goal is to God. He said, I feel a divine jealousy for you. That is a longing that he just says, look, I love, I am drawn to you, Corinthians. I am drawn to your well-being. I am drawn to push you towards the kingdom of God. And he says, I betrothed you to one husband. He's saying, I got a responsibility here. I told you about Christ. And what is the Great Commission? And teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And he says, I'm not done. You're not obeying everything that he said, so I got to keep working. I'm going to keep pushing forward. I feel this divine longing for you to grow in Christ, for your faith to get stronger. Paul is literally, he has no ego involved in this at all. And yet his heart is completely engaged. And he's using every means he has. He's doing everything he can to show them that he loves them, that God loves them, and that they can move forward in their faith. And yet, you know, they're all divided and he's still willing to take the shots on himself and say, you know what, I'm... Remember when he said previously, you know, I forgive you if there was even anything to forgive. They've been very insulting towards him, and yet he's still in this moment. It's like, you know what, that stuff doesn't matter. I don't care. I just want you to follow Christ. I just want you to grow. And so this is what godly leadership looks like. And there's a story in the Old Testament as I was preparing this sermon, as I was trying to think of, you know, what's a, what's a good example of this, uh, of godly leadership? And I know we have a lot of them, but to really get to the heart of a leader that is worth following, I think you, gotta, you can go to Solomon in the Old Testament, the son of David, as he's taking over the kingdom that David is handing over to him and God is calling him. You remember God shows up to Solomon and he says, because of the love that I have for you, your, your father David and the, the covenant I've made, Ask of me anything you want, and I'll give it to you. Now, how many of us would fail that right now? And I'm serious. That is like, if God shows up and it says, anything you want, it's yours. Man, we, I mean, it. I just know like our brain is going to like go into hyperdrive of like, I got, okay, who, who, anything, anything. And Solomon doesn't miss a beat and says, I want wisdom to rule your people well. His concern wasn't for himself. He could have been selfish in any, in an infinite number of ways right there that, that nobody but God would have really known he was being selfish. I mean, it, it could have, it, okay, I pray that I have peace and that, that my kingdom is success and, and all, and it would look good and the people on the outside would look good and they would all enjoy this prosperity of it and yet he still would have missed the boat. And he prayed, God, give me wisdom to lead your people well. His concern was for them, not for himself. And God is so pleased with that. He's like, oh, that was the right answer. That was the right answer, sir. I'm not only going to give you that, all of this other stuff you could have prayed for, I'm going to give you that too. 
And yes, Solomon, of course, became the wisest man other than, you know, Jesus Christ, basically, to, to walk on the, the face of the earth. God granted it to him, and he built the temple, and, you know, he was, he was an amazing king for a time. That's what being driven by eternity looks like. Solomon acknowledged, okay, Solomon acknowledged they weren't his people. He was about to be king of the greatest kingdom on earth at the time. And what did he say? I pray for wisdom to lead your people. You see, his ego was nowhere to be found in that. It wasn't about him. He was king. He could literally say, my kingdom. And he still called them God's people. That's what it means for godly leaders to be driven by eternity. Now, Paul knows that this is only achieved by a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. As he says, I I pray that, you know, he says, I fear that like the serpent uh, deceived Eve, you'll be deceived from turning away from what he calls a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, look, there is no formula here. How many of us like formulas? We like, you know, hey, just do A, B, and C is going to happen. Especially in the Western American world, we like to reduce that down to as like as simple, just give me the facts, give me what I need. Look, there, there is no formula in the kingdom of God other than believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And even that kind of gets bigger as you, you know, as you understand it. You're like, wow, that's a, that's a big call. But there is no formula. There is no just do this and then this will happen. And that's what Paul knows. And that's what we, we can be dragged away by that. And I think that that's probably something that the false teachers offered is they're like, oh, I, you know, here, yeah, just do this. Just do what I say and, and God will bless you and, and you'll have this and, you know, you'll be wealthy and all this other stuff or whatever. There's no formula. Godly leaders know at the end of the day it is how close people are following Christ that matters. And we can follow him closely in adversity, in blessing, in poverty, in prosperity. All of these other things on the surface don't matter so long as we're following Christ. If our life is is prosperous, it is not proof that we're following Christ any closer. If our life is difficult, it's not proof that we're following Christ any less. We can have circumstances come and go, and it is not evidence of faith. What is evidence of faith? The fruit of the Spirit. And nowhere in the fruit of the Spirit do I see, you know, prosperity. I do see peace. But that's peace of heart and peace of mind. That's Jesus asleep in the boat while the storm is raging. And all of the disciples waking him up. They're like, don't you know we're going to die? And he's like, we're not going to die. And he stands up and he calms the storm. And then he's like, see? And they're like, whoa, that's that's something else. Who are you? (laughs) You see, the fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of God's work in our lives. It's not the goal that we work towards to be attained. It's the evidence, the proof that God is active, that we are walking with him. You walk with God, you're going to have love for other people. You walk with God, you're going to have joy in your life. You walk with God, you are going to have peace 
in the midst of the storm. And that is what a sincere and pure devotion to Christ will lead us to. Our faith has to be genuine from the heart that it's sincere and that we are devoted to Jesus Christ and Him alone. We can't allow following, you know, denominations or personalities or anything else to get in the way. Because that is exactly what worldly leaders will do. They will cloud the issue. They will take the focus off of Christ. Every time. And when I say worldly leaders, look, I'm not saying that they're not Christian. What I'm saying is that they are driven by worldly philosophies. Okay, worldly practices, worldly goals. And sometimes it can look very attractive and it can... You know, if we got the, the goals of the church and we got kind of worldly goals, they can get really close to each other sometimes and get hard to tell apart. Because a worldly leader can grow a great church organization. And I mean that. It can be humming and going and blowing and going. And we got people and, and all of this stuff working. And, and we've built it to the point that, man, it functions in a way that any CEO would be happy with. And yet it can miss the boat on the Spirit of God. And for too long in this world, we have allowed secondary issues to become the focus of the church. Now listen to what Paul, how Paul says this, okay? Beginning in verse 3 again, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led, a, led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Verse 4, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now, I know all of that sounds ominous, and we think, I would never fall for that. They don't get to teach me another Jesus. They don't get to teach me another gospel. They don't get to sell me another spirit. But what did Paul say at the beginning of this? I fear that you will be deceived by the serpent's cunning. Very rarely is this going to happen where somebody literally gets up on a stage and says, look, I'm going to tell you another Jesus. That's not how it's going to work. <laughs> okay? And so we can think that we've got this, you know, shield that we're ready. Like, oh, oh, they won't fool me. I've got it. I am not following another Jesus. I'm not following another gospel. But let me show you how that actually happens, okay? Because false teachers, worldly teachers will do three things. They will proclaim another Jesus, offer something more, which is a different spirit, or they will change the gospel. Okay, so think about this. Paul points us to the serpent. So let's look at what the serpent did. He proclaimed life other than what God had provided, right? He proclaimed a different gospel. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, what were the actual commands God gave him, gave Adam and Eve? He said, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden. Which included which tree? Anyone? The tree of life. 
there was an invitation to the tree of life open to Adam and Eve. Like you can live forever and you can have paradise and all of this can be wonderful. And he says, you are free to eat from any of the trees in the garden. It is all there. So God has been generous and there is a call to life. Okay, so in a sense, we can say a gospel call in that. There's good news is that God is giving you life, eternal life. And all you got to do is believe him and take it. And what did the serpent do? He came and offered a different gospel. He said, oh, you too can be like God if you do this. He lied to him and said, oh, no, God only doesn't want you to eat from that because he knows if you do, you'll be like him. Different spirit, different gospel. And he got their attention off of the good news of God and onto a lie. And he does the exact same thing today. How do we do that today? Well, let's think about it. One, the prosperity gospel today. I know you guys hear me talk about that a lot, but it is a problem, okay? It is a problem in our nation right now. In the American church, it is a problem. Because we have this belief out there that if I just do what's right, good things will happen to me, right? We've all thought that. I I mean, let's just be honest. We have all like, hey, God, I'm serving you. Where's my good stuff? Where's my better life? Is that what God called us to? Is that why Jesus died on the cross? So that I can have a better American Western life. No, why did he die on the cross? So I could have eternal life. You see, different gospel. And it's subtle. It is one little click off of center so that they can talk about God, they can talk about Jesus, they can talk about the cross, they can talk about all the language that makes it sound good, but at the end of the day, the prosperity gospel is based in this world, not the next. Heaven is just like a throw-in, which I think is amazing in that one, that people don't see it. Like, oh, I know I go to heaven, but right now, man, God's really got me. He's going to bless me. And I'm like, you think anything in this world is going to compare to the blessing he has waiting in heaven? No. But you see, it's a different gospel. And it's literally a different Jesus then. It is a different Jesus who is more interested in your happiness right now than your eternal presence in heaven. And we use the name of Jesus and we use the church and we use the praise songs and we use the smoke machines and we use everything that we can and it's a different gospel. And you know what it's doing to people right now in this country? And I mean this. It is shredding their faith because they are committing themselves wholeheartedly. They are on their knees. They are serving. They are trying their hardest to do the right thing so that their good things will happen to them. And when those good things don't happen enough times, you know what they believe? I guess my faith just wasn't strong enough. I failed. And God wouldn't bless me. And they think that God has rejected them when that's a different gospel. You know what? And then people are like, you know, I just can't follow God anymore. I've talked to people. I've heard people go through this. And they are so confused because they're like, I believed it. I put myself into it. And I just, I'm not sure I even believe in God anymore. And you know, at the end of the day, what I say, I wouldn't believe in that God either. 
is that God is a cheap knockoff. Don't believe in that. Here is the gospel. Here is the truth. This is what was happening in Corinth, and it happens today. It is what the enemy does. He gets us to focus on a different gospel. And he will couch it in all kinds of spiritual language. He will make it feel like it will feed into self-righteousness, a desire to be righteous, but it will turn into legalism. I mean, he will. it's always just one or two clicks off from center. And so at the very beginning, it, you just, it doesn't feel entirely wrong. And you're like, ah, maybe I can see it, yeah. But you know what? Error increases over distance. The longer you walk in it, the less power it has, and the more you start to realize it's not working. And when people walk in those false gospels, it destroys their faith. And that was the point. That's what the enemy wants. And so how do we guard ourselves against that? Because we have to. All of us. You cannot just count on you know, having the right pastor or, or the right person that's going to steer you away from it. We all have to be responsible in our own faith to know what we believe, why we believe it, and be able to identify error when it tries to come into our lives. Because Satan is sneaky. He is sneaky. He will come after you in ways that you won't recognize early on. And if you don't have the truth nailed down in your heart as to exactly what God has called you to be and who He's called you to follow, what He's called you to follow, then He can get His hook in you and lead you astray and you don't even know it till it's a lot of damage has been done. Look, I'm never going to say it's too late because God didn't do anything, okay? But a lot of damage can be done to your faith and the faith of people around you if we follow a false gospel. So how do we determine true from false? Because Paul rebukes the Corinthians because he says they put up with it. He says they come and they do this and he says you put up with it readily enough. And that was the problem is they weren't willing to look at him and say, no, that's wrong. That is not what Paul taught us. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ and I'm not going to listen to it. So how do we do it? One, Ask yourself this question. When you start hearing something that might not seem right, is the gospel and lordship of Jesus Christ the central message? Always come back to the gospel. And when I say come back to the gospel, understand what the gospel is. That Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitutionary death for your sin and the sin of the world. That Whoever believes in him not perish but have eternal life. Now, how many of you can say the gospel that quickly? If you can't, work on it. And I mean it. Work on it. Settle that in your heart that this is not about my happiness in life. It is about my holiness for all eternity. Happiness comes and goes. Happiness is based on circumstances and culture and how, you know, whether my breakfast tasted good this morning. I mean, we, we base our happiness on so many different things every day that it's going to come and go. The gospel is always steadfast. And if we know why Jesus died, we know who Jesus was, and we know that he resurrected, and what the call of the gospel is, it will keep us centered. It will always keep us centered. And so we have to take care because Satan is good at fooling people. Self-fulfillment, self-actualization, success, happiness, personal peace, personal prosperity, personal health, financial freedom. How many of y'all have heard these phrases in the modern spiritual world? Self-care, self-love, positivity, 
morality, and even family. All good things, but not what Jesus died on the cross for. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. And if we remember that, it will clear up a lot of confusion. And worldly leaders will take those secondary issues and make them primary. They will. They will take them. They will make them primary. They will make it the point of your faith rather than a result of your faith. Now, is, does God value family? Absolutely. I'm not saying God doesn't value these things. I'm saying it is not the central message. Don't make it the central message. Number two, if you are wondering, and I'm dead serious on this, if you're wondering if somebody is worth following and listening to, okay, because the Internet age, we have no shortage of voices to listen to, right? I mean, it's all there. If you want to find the person that teaches that God wants you to wear a balloon on your head, you'll find it. And you will find people that follow it. <laughs> okay? So the, whatever you want to find is out there. It can't be based on us. It's got to be based on the gospel. And, and so listen to their messages and see if after four or five messages, one, the gospel, has the gospel been clearly articulated? There are guys that I can see on TV that I, I've listened to many times, and I'm like, I still, after years, have never heard them articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ever. Not once. Now think about that. There's supposed to be pastors and leaders who are of the kingdom of God, and yet they won't speak of the one most important part of the kingdom of God. That is making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So is that, does that happen? Okay. Two, is there a call for people to repent and believe in the gospel? And three, are they then called to a life of self-denial and faithfulness to the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament? If you will learn to incorporate those three kind of safeguards, those three levels of discernment, is the gospel proclaimed as there a call to believe the gospel through repentance and faith and a life then of faithfulness and self-denial in service to Jesus? If those three things do not make consistent appearances in a teaching, and I'm just going to say right now, reject it. Walk away from it. Not worth following. We have gurus all over the place. We have motivational speakers all over the place. You know what? If you need a motivational speaker to help you with your job, that's great. Go listen to them. If it gets you rah-rah about your business and you do that and it succeeds, that is amazing. I'm glad it works for you, but that is not the gospel. And it is not proof that God approves of you more than somebody else. We have to keep the gospel central. That's how we guard ourselves. And so then, how do we kind of live life within this? Because, like I said, we live in an age the internet age, where we could literally find the best speakers, the best worship leaders, the best stage production, the best sound, the best lighting, the best graphics and multimedia, the exact kind of music we like, the exact kind of culture we like, the exact kind of pastor we like, and we can incorporate all of it together and miss the point of what God's doing in our lives because we found a church that reflects us rather than God. And we have it everywhere. 
And we don't even realize. See, that's what I mean. God, Satan is sneaky. And we don't realize that's what he's doing is that he's selling a second gospel of, oh, God really wants you to be happy and you should find a church that meets all your needs. And so we create churches in our image where we have the exact kind of music, the exact kind of pastor who will speak only the messages that we want to hear, which is confirmation bias, so that I'll only hear what I already believe and I'll never be convicted. And we just kind of leave this whole thing out there. And so how do we do that? We've got to learn to look past the hype. Listen, in our world today, propaganda... So much is there just to get an emotional response, to evoke an emotional response out of people. Everything in media is now designed to hook us in some way. And none of us is immune to it, okay? None of us. And we have to learn to look at what is most important and value that to such a degree that no amount of hype can distract us from it. And it means we got to learn to look past the thing that's flashy. Because I'm going to tell you right now, what Satan does is he puts, you know, how many of y'all have the bug zapper with the light in the middle? What is it? It's the light. How many, man, I just, I could stare at those things for hours in the summer. And I, maybe it's really bad, but I like just laugh like at the, you know, the bug, he flies in, it's like, oh, yeah. Shouldn't have gone for it. That's what Satan does with us. It is. It's what Satan does with us. He puts something shiny out there and he's like, let's see who will run to it. And when we run to it, it burns us. Whereas if we can learn to look past the hype, I mean it, we aren't drawn to that stuff. And here's what Paul says about this, okay? In verse 5, he says, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. He's aggravated with them. And he's calling them super apostles at this point because he's making fun of them. But he's also aggravated with them. Because they've built themselves up into something. They've got this following coming after them and they're producing absolutely nothing but division in the church. And they're hurting the work of God. And he already said, when I get there, I'm going to take care of this. You remember when he said that? What we, you know, what we say in absent, we do in person. And he says, I'm going to show some boldness towards some people. When I get there, Paul's, Paul's done with this. And so he says, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So what was it? The Corinthians gave in to the hype. Some people were incredibly good at speaking. They came in and, man, they sounded smooth and they had these awesome presentations and they, they put up the good front. And the Corinthians were like, ooh, flashy. And they ran to it. And Paul is like, hey, and they're like, yeah, Paul doesn't speak that well. And he's like, yeah, maybe not, but I lead you to God. He says, I may be unskilled in speaking, but I am not in knowledge. See, they weren't giving him the truth. And Paul's like, I'm giving you the truth. So here is a question that I want to ask, okay? Would you rather have a boring truth or an entertaining lie guide your life? Our world right now likes, prefers the entertaining lie. And I mean that. They prefer the entertaining lie. 
And when we believe that, it leads us to a place where we are being deceived just like Adam and Eve. And instead of focusing on Jesus, it takes our focus to surface issues. So Paul admitted they were better speakers than him, but they were not speaking the truth. The Corinthians got caught up in the hype, and far too many were being entertained rather than sanctified. And the same thing is happening today in our world, and people are being entertained all the way to hell. And I mean that. They are being entertained all the way to hell. And we have to take that seriously. We have to focus on the gospel. And so I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I go to church to meet God or to be affirmed in what I already believe? Does God have permission to upset your life to sanctify you? How far can God go in your life to sanctify you? How uncomfortable can he make you so that we turn loose of idols? How far do you think God's willing to go to do that? I mean, he sent his own son to die on a cross. He takes holiness seriously. And if we are too busy being entertained and too busy looking at worldly comforts as evidence of God's grace, then when God's grace, God's saving, sanctifying grace leads us to an uncomfortable place so we'll let go of an idol, we won't recognize it. We don't recognize it. And then we're like, God, why are you doing this to me? And he's like, I'm doing this because I love you. And we haven't... We don't have the language for that in our world today anymore. We just don't even understand it. Because in our world, pain is something to be avoided at all costs, in all ways. And even if, if oh man, I am so uncomfortable right now, I've got to do something to fix it. Where God says, no, I kind of want you to live in it for a while so that your thinking changes. And you learn to value the eternal. And so ask yourself, do I go to church to meet God or to be affirmed in what I already believe? And then two, focus on true biblical discipleship in your life. This is how we look past the hype. Focus on true biblical discipleship. What is that? It is following in the footsteps of Jesus. Doing what he wants you to do moment by moment, day by day. And sometimes, most of the time, that is incredibly bland. And I mean that, okay? It is unremarkably effective. <laughs> and when I say unremarkably, I mean there's nothing flashy about it. it it's prayer and Bible study and loving your neighbor and, and going through life just day by day by day, being faithful to God and just seeking, God, I want to please you today. Okay, well, I pleased God by doing my job well, by loving my family well, and by fellowshipping and helping people where I could and, and glorifying Him God, is that really it? He's like, yeah, that was it today. Good job. What about tomorrow? Yeah, it's pretty much going to be the same. That's not going to change. And the healthiest churches are the churches who don't give in to the hype, but they have this consistent ability to focus on God and the gospel, to love each other, and to continue focusing on what God wants them to do, as boring as it may be. And you know what? You'll see people come and go. There'll be people that they're looking for flashy. And they'll come in and they're like, oh, I love it. And then when they realize that it's kind of boring, man, you guys focus on the gospel a whole lot and discipleship and not much else. Then they'll find the next flashy thing and they'll go. 
And then when that flash wears out, they'll find something else. And we pray that eventually they stop looking for what's flashy and they start looking for what's real. Because when a church is unremarkable in that fashion, but faithful to God, that is a church that is powerful. And it doesn't show itself like the world. It doesn't feel the same as the world. It's about true discipleship. So what is he calling you to do? What is he changing? What is he convicting you to change? And what is the truth teaching you? We just keep walking in those questions all the time, being faithful to God, and good things happen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. And God, I thank you for each person in here. And God, I pray. I pray that you reaffirm in our hearts, God, the truth of the gospel, the sufficiency of the gospel, that it is all that we need, that you are all that we need. God, that where maybe we have bought into the hype where we have gotten distracted, God, I pray that you bring our focus back on you. And God, just lead us in the path of true discipleship. God, that we as a church would be leaders worth following in this world because we point people to Christ. God, we don't want to be accused of entertaining people with a lie. God, we want to be a people who love others as you have loved us, who walk in truth and discipleship. God, may this be our call and who we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. I saw Satan fall like lightning. And I saw darkness run full cover. But the miracle that I just can't get over is my name is registered in heaven. I believe in signs and wonders. I have resurrection power. Yeah. But the miracle that I just can't get over is my name. Is registered in heaven, and my praise belongs to you forever. This is my testimony from death to life, cause grace rewrote my story. I'll testify by Jesus Christ the righteous, I'm justified. This is my testimony. This is my testimony. Father God, we come to you and God, your grace is truly amazing. God, may we walk in that grace day by day. God, increase our discipleship. Increase our reach as a church, God, that we would have an impact for your kingdom. God, not that people would know us, but that they would know you. That we would see lives transformed through your spirit, your grace, and that you would be glorified in the lives of each person in this church. God, go with us this week. 
Use us to share your light, your love, and your grace. God, may we walk with you through this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.